Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number, if you'd like to be in the program, on the program, I guess I should open the call screening program, shouldn't I? The phone number is 877-97-ERIC. That's 877-973-7425. Did you feel the earthquake? Those of you up in Dalton this morning, did you feel the earthquake? Uh, It was uh, Varnell in Catoosa County. It was... Well, I, I guess it was 3.10 a.m. Saturday morning, uh, and then there was another one. They were actually teeny tiny earthquakes. Uh, most people would never have felt them um, up there in the woods and the mountains of North Georgia. Uh, they, let's see, the Richter scale was on the Richter scale. 1.6 on the Richter scale, not significant enough to matter. But nonetheless, yes, there was an earthquake, uh, two of them. Up in North Georgia, just north of Dalton, actually, uh, over the weekend. Uh, Now, okay, in the call screening program, so you can actually call in now. Uh, I am happy, by the way, to take your questions on impeachment today. I I assume that many of you have questions about the state of play and procedure with impeachment. I will take those. Uh, 877-973-7425 is the number. You can also get me on social media at EW Erickson on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, uh, you name it. Uh, but I, I want to begin, yeah, we, we need to spend some serious time on impeachment and, and give you the flow of it, but we got a story we need to talk about right here out of Georgia. Authorities in North Georgia have arrested three men who belong to a white supremacist organization that were plotting to kill a Bartow County couple overthrow the government, and start a race war. Um, WRGA, uh, my affiliate up in Rome, has this story. If you want to go to um, their website is, let me make sure I've got it right, WRGANews.com, WRGANews.com. They've got the story. The AJC has the story as well. Floyd County Police allege uh, three of the members, they call themselves The Base, a violent organization uh, with a substantial presence south of Rome, In the rural Silver Creek community, they want to establish a white ethno-state. The men, Michael Helterbrand of Dalton, Jacob Kaderly of Dekula, and Luke Austin Lane of Silver Creek, plotted in North Georgia with a fourth member of the same group, a Canadian named Patrick Jordan Matthews. Law enforcement arrested Matthews, a former combat engineer in the Canadian Army Reserve, and two other base members in Maryland, and charged them with firearms-related offenses this week. Matthews had discussed participating in the gun rally in Virginia today, where state lawmakers are looking at gun control measures. Uh, And the rally uh, has drawn support across from white supremacist groups. Oh, here we go. We'll, We'll get into the Virginia rally here in a minute. But here's the thing. So the three Georgians, again, from Rome, from Dalton, Decula, and Silver Lake, or Silver Creek, they've been charged with participating in criminal gang activity and a conspiracy to commit murder. There's a 20-page affidavit that the Floyd County Police released Friday. It describes how undercover FBI agents infiltrated the group, met some of the members on the Lane family's property in Silver Creek, participated in shooting drills for what the group called the Boogaloo, or the collapse of the United States and a race war. 
Lane uh, is identified in an affidavit using the online alias TMB. It was a regular poster on neo-Nazi forums. He described his journey from the libertarian-leaning Republican to radical neo-Nazi. He says he was always a Nazi and never knew it. He used the phrase national socialist. That's probably why I skipped about in the fringiest circles looking for the truth I knew existed somewhere. Now, Matthews crossed the country. I find this hilarious. Uh, the Canadian is an illegal alien crossed over into the United States illegally. Um, now, what were they plotting? Well, the the, the three up in uh, Halterbrand, Kaderly, and Lane wanted to kill an unnamed couple from Bartow County, a married couple, who they believed belonged to the Atlanta anti-fascists. That's right. Uh, they wanted to. They wanted to kill two members of Antifa who they believe lived in Bartow County. This is insane. But can I focus on something real quick here? And I. Uh, so listen. Um, is it too early? It's not too early in the morning for this. You people need to hear that. We we all need to hear this. Let me dwell on this for a moment, please. And, and maybe I'm I'm going to go on a soapbox. We'll get to impeachment, but I think this is important, given this line. Again, if you're just joining us here on the Eric Erickson Show, uh, WRGA News in Rome and the AJC in Atlanta, they're both reporting that three neo-Nazis were arrested. They belong to a a radical uh, gang of white nationalists. They have been plotting to kill two citizens of Bartow County, who they believe were uh, anti-members of Antifa. They have been also plotting to set off a race war and believe that the collapse of the United States is upon us. There is a segment of society, a a rather fringe segment of society, I might add, that actually has embraced all of this. But I want to read this line again. This is from the guy. This is from the the guy in Silver Creek. Let Let me get his name right again, just so we can... Make sure we're all on the same page with these people. Some of you may know him. Luke Austin Lane. Luke Austin Lane. And, and I got to say, uh, Luke Austin Lane, what's so funny here is you got a bunch of neo-Nazis and they all got black hair. Now, we're, we're black hair and brown eyes. Where are the, where are the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Nazis in, in, in the mountains? This is Luke Austin Lane, 21, from Silver Creek. I want to read you this quote from him. I was always national socialist, Nazi, but never knew it. So that is probably why I skipped around in fringiest circles looking for the truth I knew existed somewhere. We have a 21-year-old who described his journey from libertarian-leaning Republican to radical neo-Nazi, and this is how he describes it. I was always National Socialist, but never knew it. So that is probably why I skipped around in fringiest circles, looking for the truth I knew existed somewhere. I can't emphasize this enough. With these three young men in North Georgia joining a white supremacist group wanting to set off a race war, preparing for the collapse of the United States, and wanting to kill members of Antifa. And they're 25, 19, and this guy, 21 years old, saying that that he, he was looking for the truth he knew existed somewhere. One of the problems we have in this country, 
is the overtaking of American society of moral relativism, and everybody can have their own truth. You can have your truth. I can have my truth. Everybody can have have their truth. Heck, uh, we, we've got a bank now merger that's going to take over the Brave Stadium and name it Truist Park. It, they're not true. They're truest. Truthy. The truthy bank. Truth is now a relative expression in this country, but deep down, every single person knows there actually is a truth. There actually is real truth in the world, and I think we all have an obligation to it. And particularly, I think, if you find yourself to be a person of faith, particularly if you're a Christian, you believe your your God is the God of truth, and so you have an obligation to truth, even in a crazy, crazy, upside-down political world where both sides lie all the time, and we're supposed to just accept the spin as truth when the spin is not truth. We're supposed to find the truth. you got people out there trying to find truth. Everybody has a little voice in the back of their head saying something is true, that there is real truth out there, and you have meaning, and you have purpose. Uh, you're not just going to die and live in a grave, be, be put in a grave in the ground, and the worms are going to eat your body, and that's it. Everybody's going to forget about you. That's not the way the world works. That's the way the world wants you to believe it works, because once the world gets hopelessness in you, the world can take over. But there's actually a real hope out there. I mean, I'm a Christian. I believe my hope is in, in Christ. I believe that's true. I believe that's truth. I believe he's truth. I believe I have an obligation to truth because I have an obligation to him, and we should pursue it. And every single person on the planet has a little voice in the back of their head whispering to them that there's something more to life. They have a purpose. They have a role to play. And you have these three young men, 25, 21, and 19. The 21-year-old has clearly been in search of something and instead of turning to God, instead of turning to actually truth, he turned to politics and he started off as a libertarianish Republican. Anything goes as long as he can have a good time and the government stays out of the way. But ultimately, he knew there was something more and he went in search of truth. And where did he find that truth? I guarantee you, he found it on the internet. He found web forums on the internet. In fact, we now know he, he was writing on forums online. He was looking for a tribe. He was looking for a people to belong to. And that's what he found. And increasingly, this is part of our problem as a society is we've given up on having community in person with each other. And we've all gone online to find our own communities. And we build communities who look and think exactly like us. Miracle of miracles. Your Facebook friends tend to be the people most likely to agree with you. They also tend to be the people least likely to drop off a casserole when you're sick or water your plants or walk your dog when you're out of town. Because they're not real community. It's fake. And this guy went online trying to find community and truth, and he found community and truth in the dark recesses of the internet that are there, and then built community out of it, and then found a real community that itself had done the same thing, and they built a real community in the real world of perverted truths from the dark recesses of the internet. This could be your kid, and you don't even know it. It could. I, I wonder where the parents are for these three. Do, do the parents agree? Had the parents led them astray? This is becoming a real big problem. And all I can tell you is the thing that, particularly if you have kids, your kids need to understand and you need to understand there actually is real truth in the world and you got an obligation to it. And sometimes it's not convenient. Sometimes it hurts you. Sometimes it doesn't align with your political beliefs. Sometimes it shakes your worldview. But there's real truth out there. The sun coming up, that's that's true. It is. 
And you can quibble over the details of actually it's not really coming up. The, the, the world is orbiting and rotating, and we're rotating, and the sun's not moving, and that gives the effect. But you know exactly what everybody means, and, and you can quibble with the truth and the nuances and be argumentative if you want, or you can just accept the truth. And we have fewer and fewer people willing to just accept truth. We have more and more people realizing that there is a truth out there and they're going in search of it and they're not finding churches. They're not finding real community and they're going online and they're becoming corrupted online. They're believing the lies and the lies become the truth. Here are three young men in North Georgia who embrace the idea that the country's falling apart, a race war is coming and they were going to be prepared and they were going to help start it. Young men who decided that whiteness is what defined them and who hate other people who are white who don't get defined by their whiteness because they decided that was where the truth lies. You know, until we as a society, particularly those of us in the church, let, let me, and I realize I, I got a lot, I, my audience is fairly diverse, but I'm actually talking to people who go to church regularly now. If you believe in the truth that you hear from the pulpit every Sunday, you know there's a real truth. You need to get out into your actual community when you leave the front door of the church. And you need to make a difference in your local community. Because there are a lot of people, particularly in schools, there are a lot of people who are trying to find truth. And you have it and they don't. I think about uh, Bruce Thompson, the state senator up in Bartow County, who gets together all the pastors from all of the churches at his house every year for Christmas. I went up there this past year for his party. These are uh, ministers from different denominations who disagree fundamentally on theology, and yet they're all willing to have a good time, hang out together, get to know one another, and work together in their community. The, the volunteers from their churches work together. They go into schools and they work with, with elementary school students to read and to write. They work with teachers. The churches in Bartow County are extremely involved in their community. It should be an example for the rest of us in the state and our churches, how we should be involved and, and fielding volunteers for local schools. The, the siloed church business that so many of us experience where we're in our church and our church is with us and, and we're with no one else except the church is is deeply problematic as so many churches now view themselves as businesses uh, competing with each other for for attendance for congregants for money for tithes seek the welfare of the city in which you're in exile there you'll find your welfare these people went online to find a truth because they heard the voice in the back of their head. And instead of going to a church, instead of having a, a mentor, instead of having someone who could point them to real truth, they went online and they found 4chan or some such, I'm sure, and found a bunch of hooey and decided that was the truth. And they became neo-Nazis and now they're going to go to jail for plotting to murder and start a race war. Three lives lost to lies because they decided the lies were the truth. And we should be thankful for law enforcement finding them and stopping them. And we should be sad that yet again, a group of people wanted to go in search of community. They heard the voice in their head saying something is true. They went to find out what that truth was and they found a bunch of lies and they built a community off of it. And that is increasingly happening in this country, across, not just white supremacists. 
across the board in politics and life. People building whole foundations and lives on lies. And we've lost in three more. Thankfully, we did not lose two others to murder because the police were able to stop them. You know, I, I always, uh, I worry always about feeling like a broken record on this stuff, but it's also something I feel very strongly about, this the this quest for truth. You know, now that I've got a, an 11-year-old and a 14-year-old, and they, they ask questions, and uh, the questions can break down ultimately into what actually is true. And I feel like i got an obligation to help them. And, man, I am so much more mindful now as I interact with others in, in the world and and kids, how broken things really are when it comes to family and, and people get online going to try to find community and they go down the dark recesses of the internet and it goes badly for them and everyone else. And that's really sad and unfortunate. Uh, it, 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 I, I want to move on now to the impeachment stuff. Senators are actually kind of frustrated. When we come back, I want to put this in real perspective for you. The Senate has released the rules of decorum for how the impeachment trial must go. And senators are starting to realize, uh, advantage Joe Biden. Here, let me read for you the decorum guidelines for the Senate. Senators should plan to be in attendance at all times. Upon the announcement of the arrival of the Chief Justice, Senators should all silently rise at their desks and remain standing until the Chief Justice takes his seat. Similarly, when the Chief Justice departs, Senators should rise and remain standing until he exits. Senators will only have the opportunity for limited speech at the trial. Members should refrain from speaking to neighboring Senators while the case is being presented. Reading materials should be confined to those reading uh, what pertains to the matter before the Senate. No phones or electronic devices will be allowed. Pages will continue to be available to relay messages outside the chamber, and the pages also will be responsible for relaying Senators' written questions to the Chief Justice. During the course of the proceedings, the Chief Justice should be referred to as Mr. Chief Justice. Should the votes should votes be required during the proceedings, Senators will stand and vote from their seats. The well of the Senate will not be accessible to Senators. Please refrain from coming between the Chief Justice and the managers and counsel. Members should refrain from using the doors to the lobby when the Senate is sitting in trial. Access to the Senate floor for the Senators will be through the Ohio clock door and cloakrooms until the trial begins. Following the Chief Justice, all entries and exits will be through the cloakrooms. Those are the Democrats and Republicans each have a room where they can go in and talk on their cell phones and whatnot. Members that choose to use the Ohio clock door should immediately proceed to the cloakroom to store all electronic devices prior to taking their seat in the Senate. So... No electronic devices, no talking, no asking questions, no making a spectacle of yourselves, and you will be detained if you try to flee. (laughs) I love that part. Uh, Some of them are starting to complain. Now, others aren't, uh, but they're beginning to grouse privately, some of them, about Nancy Pelosi saying essentially this really was her trying to stack the deck for Joe Biden. It's amazing. The Bernie bros out there are in complete meltdown over Nancy Pelosi, uh, claiming that Nancy tried her best to make it all about uh, trying to help Joe Biden against Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. Bernie and Elizabeth, meanwhile, are trying to get back on the same page. Their supporters, though, have decided they hate each other. We need to get into that as well. When we come back, though, 
I want to put impeachment into real perspective for you as uh, the media rushes out a bunch of reports attacking the president's counsel and uh, the people who are helping the president, running a bunch of smear campaigns on how Alan Dershowitz and Ken Starr don't like each other, and here they are working together, and neither one is competent. And, oh, look at the Democrats. I'll put it all in perspective for you and take your calls when we come back. I finally did the homework that I should have been doing. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here, The Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, if you'd like to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC. That's 877-973-7425. I want to put impeachment in perspective for you, just so you have a better sense of the, the lay of the land and the state of play. I went back and looked at the headlines from last year. In January, the American government shut down with a funding fight over the border. The same month, we recognize Juan Guaido as the president of Venezuela. Maduro's held on, but the U.S. has helped build an international coalition against him. In March, if you'll recall, there was a terrible mass shooting in Christchurch, New Zealand, and then a number of shootings in synagogues and churches in this country last year. In April... There was a malaria vaccine that rolled out successfully in Africa. First time a malaria vaccine has been successfully deployed. Uh, Researchers also figured out how to eliminate HIV and infected mice, and we got our first ever picture of a black hole. Remember that one? That was pretty awesome. First picture of a black hole. Guess what? It was a black hole. In July, uh, do you remember the president had a summit with North Korea in Singapore? We also destroyed an Iranian drone in the Gulf Uh, the Persian Gulf. During the summer, there was the massive wave of immigrants from Central America coming across the border, overwhelming border patrol agents, uh, enraging the president. Jim Acosta went down to the border to claim that there there was no no illegal immigrant crisis. He happened to be doing so in areas that had a border wall, and people pointed that out. Uh, Democrats became really concerned all of a sudden about caging kids, something Barack Obama had started, and suddenly it was concentration camps, and a man uh, got killed trying to firebomb an ICE facility. All that happened last summer. In September, Yemeni rebels bombed an Aramco oil refinery in Saudi Arabia. We repositioned troops to help the Saudis. Brazil caught on fire. Greta Thunberg came over on a yacht owned by a prince. She got to New York City, was treated like a celebrity, and then headed back out to see Brexit happen, and then didn't, and then happened, and then didn't, and then they had an election, and conservatives swept the field, and Jeremy Corbyn put out the pasture, and the U.S. bailed out of Syria. Australia caught on fire. They blamed global warming and climate change until 200 people were arrested for arson, and they weren't all named climate change, and then they dropped that story as quick as they could. The U.S. ended the year with Soleimani. Hey, remember Soleimani, Kasim Soleimani? He was a general in, in Iran, and we killed him only a couple of weeks ago. We've already moved on from that. The Women's March, all the other marches and protests and police brutality claims and and violence in the street and and bad actors and hate crimes and all that stuff. Ukraine happened in, in October. Adam Schiff coordinated with the whistleblower for a month before rolling it out. And then there was impeachment and all this other stuff you forgot over the last 365 days. I go through this timeline of all the events that happened to point out that this is all going to be forgotten. In four weeks, impeachment is going to be old news. No one's going to care about it. Everybody's going to move on. We are perpetually distracted. Do you remember the movie Up? Uh, Up. 
It's the it's the Pixar movie about the guy who's is oh the first fifteen minutes of the movie you're crushing, crushing. My eleven year old actually told me last week he was very proud of it. He had he had watched the movie the whole way through and didn't cry. He wanted to, but he didn't. Oh, that first fifteen minutes such a good movie. Up the the old man. If you've never seen it, go see it. The old man uh, has a bunch of balloons, uh, ties them to his house, and he floats away with a little Cub Scout kid, and they land. It's supposed to be in Venezuela, and uh, he wants to go see Waterfall, and they encounter Doug the dog. Doug is a dog that has a collar, and the collar around Doug's neck allows the Golden Retriever to translate his uh, words, his sounds, into human language. And he comes up and he says, hello, master, my name is Doug Squirrel. And he turns and he's distracted. And Doug will be in conversation. You go this way to get to Squirrel and would turn and be distracted again. We are Doug the dog. We are all distracted, willing to be distracted, in search of distractions, perpetually distracted. The news cycle runs so fast. Um, what is it, Mickey Kals, uh, whatever happened to that guy, the, the Faster Feeler th- thesis that the news cycle runs so much that things that used to be able to shape a news cycle for 90 days now shape it for like nine minutes. I mean, it used to be that the president of the United States could give a big speech and we would talk about it for a week, and now this president tweets, and the whole news media rushes out to chase the tweet, and then he tweets again, and they rush the other direction, perpetually back and forth, always distracted. And somehow or another, these people actually think that that impeachment is going to matter in four weeks when it's over and done with, and everybody's forgotten it. We're going to get to November of this year, and the president is still going to be president, and people are going to be thinking, holy cow, how is how is it that the media saying that Donald Trump was impeached? I don't remember him being impeached. I mean, most people, they've already forgotten Soleimani. They've forgotten the Iranian response. They've forgotten Greta Thunberg. They've forgotten all the wildfires. They've forgotten the California fires. They've forgotten the the North Korea summit. They've forgotten all of these things. And a lot of the things most quickly forgotten are the things that that weren't successful. Impeachment is not going to be successful. The Democrats do not have the votes. And I got to tell you, one of the things that frustrates me here, I'm more and more aware of, and frankly it is because I I now have a personal connection to it with my my children's teacher being called up to go to Afghanistan. Our soldiers are going to go to Afghanistan. Some of our soldiers are going to get killed in Afghanistan. And we have all moved on from the Washington Post story about how the military no longer has a rational, articulable response for why we're in Afghanistan. And Afghanistan itself is another example of this distracted news cycle. Our soldiers in Afghanistan are hostage to the news cycle. It's hard to penetrate and keep people focused on why are we still there? When are we coming home? Why are our soldiers dying for a failed state that we continue to prop up, that continues to collapse, that continues to necessitate us propping it up? When are we leaving? Our soldiers are held hostage to our inability to pay attention. We're going to move on from the headlines when more of them are injured, when there's a Taliban attack. We're going to move on from the headlines of impeachment. Campaign 2020 is going to beckon after all. Campaign 2020 is going to dominate the news coverage. The troops are going to stay in Afghanistan for reasons no one can explain. And squirrel, we'll move on to other stuff. That's just the way it works.
and it is unfortunate for our soldiers. It is unfortunate for everybody but the president, frankly, who's going to benefit by people forgetting about impeachment in four weeks. The Democrats will have poured all of their energy into this, and the only thing that's likely to happen is that they're going to ensure Joe Biden becomes the Democratic nominee because Nancy Pelosi and Bernie Sanders and Amy Klobuchar and even Michael Bennett, who's apparently still in the race, are going to be stuck in the Senate for the next two to four weeks handling this impeachment trial. And the only guy I'll look at, well, you'll have Pete Buttigieg and Bloomberg and Steyer and Yang, but it'll be Joe Biden dominating the headlines on the campaign trail as he and the president are free to campaign and the rest of these Democrats aren't. And in four weeks, everyone will forget all about it and be distracted by something else. That, friends, frankly, is what we're dealing with. We live in the age of distraction. Now, along the way, uh, it's not going to help the Democrats very much. Here's Jonathan Swan from Axios. He was on, I think it was Meet the Press this weekend. I'll just put one asterisk next to this. Impeachment has been great for business on the Trump campaign. They've raised a lot of money. Oh, have they ever. Have they ever. And the extent to which this has grown their fundraising base and actually really engaged the Republican uh, do- uh, donors, but also the grassroots. They've collected data. They've already got a formidable data machine, text messages, Facebook. I mean, it's been significant. It has. I I keep getting these text messages and I find them very annoying and I keep trying to unsubscribe from them. I mean, I send text messages and, and I'm always mindful. I don't want to send them a ton. I don't want to bother people. If there's some big breaking news thing, you know, I want you to be on the arm, activist army list. Uh, and, and I really do want you to be on that list because if there's a big and there are going to be some big fights in the Georgia legislature. Uh, the Speaker of the House, for example, is opposed to adoption reform in the state, uh, opposed to this commission looking at adoption reform. And we're going to have to take that fight. And, and if you want to join, if you want to be able to reach out to your state representative and state senator, I want you to text the word army to 33777 and you'll get on my list. And I don't sell the list and you're not going to get text messages from me fundraising for a bunch of candidates and, and whatnot uh, like I keep getting now I, Drew, I get text messages from Drew Ferguson I never even gave Drew Ferguson money how did he get my cell phone number uh, the president's campaign team and the like they keep texting me and that is getting annoying as all get out but they're turning it into a huge messaging operation and impeachment is a huge fundraising opportunity for them and I got to tell you if they bring up Hunter Biden it is going to be hilarious to watch this. Listen to Jerry Nadler on the Sunday shows talking about bringing Nadler or uh, bringing Hunter Biden in. You know, the question of witnesses uh, in any trial, in any trial, all relevant witnesses uh, must be heard. Whether if, if you're accused of robbing a bank, uh, te- testimony that I saw him rob the bank or he was somewhere else, he couldn't have robbed the bank is admissible. It's not negotiable whether you have witnesses. And this whole controversy about whether there should be witnesses is, ju- is really a question of, does the Senate want to have a fair trial, or, do they, or are they part of the cover-up of the president? Any Republican senator who says there should be no witnesses, or even that witnesses should be negotiated, is part of the cover-up. So you're saying no way would Hunter Biden ever be called to testify? Well, I'm saying that Hunter Biden has no knowledge of the accusations against the president. Did the president, uh, uh, as, we, as, as the evidence shows that he did, betray his country mm-hmm. uh, by conspiring with a foreign country to, tr- to try to rig the election? Hunter Biden has nothing to say about that. Uh, they're, they're asking for Hunter Biden is just more of a smear of Hunter Biden that the president was trying to get the Ukraine to do. But the fact of the matter is, let the chief justice rule on 
on, yeah. on the chief justice in the first instance rules on uh, evidence. The Senate can overrule him, but yeah. no chief justice would, uh, uh, would, 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 would think of, of, of admitting uh, 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 evidence that, that is not relevant. No well, trial I'm judge would in, in any trial. But see, isn't this the brilliance of calling Hunter Biden because the Republicans get to fight out the issue of relevance? I mean, the president's claim is he wanted to make sure that Joe Biden had not abused his power to protect his son. He wanted to make sure that we weren't sending money into a corrupt system that had covered up for the Bidens. I mean, that, that whether, you, whether you buy the excuse or not, that's the president's excuse, and that's directly relevant to why he was talking to Ukraine's president. The fact that Jerry Nadler can't concede that is hilarious. And the Republicans, of course, have the votes. If the chief justice were to deny it, they got the votes to override it. Here's Ted Cruz. Well, Maria, you're right, and, and the Democrats desperately want to keep that topic off the news, and sadly, an awful lot of folks in the media are very compliant with that. But that, that's why I said this week, the president having the opportunity to defend himself is... By the way, that somebody in the background vacuuming while Ted Cruz is on TV. There's nobody vacuuming near my office. So important, because I think one of the fundamental defenses that I expect to hear from the White House this week is that the president has inherent authority and, in fact, a responsibility to investigate corruption. And when you look at what happened with Joe Biden and Hunter Biden, there is at a minimum a pr prima facie evidence of corruption. You've got Hunter Biden getting paid $83,000 a month by Burisma, the largest natural gas company in Ukraine. $83,000 a month is a million dollars a year. Wow. Hunter Biden had zero experience in oil and gas. It's not like he was a geologist or geophysicist. He was getting that money, the obvious inference is, because his daddy was vice president. And, and, and Joe Biden is on video, the Council of Foreign Relations bragging that he blocked a billion dollars in foreign loans and foreign aid to Ukraine until they fired the prosecutor who was potentially investigating Burisma, the company on which Hunter Biden sat on the board. When, if the Biden family is profiting to the tunes of millions of dollars, the president is in entirely justified saying, let's investigate and find out what happened. That's why Hunter Biden is such an important witness and why the Democrats don't want to focus on what was the evidence of actual corruption. I, I expect to hear a lot from that, from that from the White House defense team this week. You've <laughs> you know, listen, whether, again, whether you agree with the president or not, whether you think he, he, this is all a bunch of horse manure, the reality is that the president gets to make a defense. And if his defense is he wanted to make sure that Ukraine was actually pursuing corruption and that he had heard rumors that uh, they had abandoned pursuing corruption because the Bidens were involved and he wanted to check, that's a perfectly plausible defense for his conduct on the call with Ukraine's president, whether you like it or not. And the extent to which you can't accept that that's a plausible defense and explanation for his call is the extent to which you've let partisanship poison your brain on this. Now, Jerry Nadler, he doesn't want this because he, he doesn't want to give the Republicans an excuse on this, and he doesn't want the sideshow, and he wants to protect uh, the, the Bidens because the Bidens, thanks to Nancy Pelosi, he, he, Joe's going to be the nominee. But the reality is the president gets to make a defense. And Hunter Biden is going to be the fall guy, and you've already got Democrats now behind the scenes saying, bring it on, just just let him fall. Take one for the team, Hunter. Let's move on. Uh, and that's going to go badly, I think, for Joe Biden. 
and it's going to soften him up for the president to define him. You know, let me, let's see, do, do I have this one clip? Uh, da, 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 da. I, I, do I have it? Because uh, I saw it, and I was going to get it, and then I think I decided not to get it. Yeah, I don't, no, no, here it is, here it is. This is Donald Trump Jr. on Fox News, and this is why Hunter Biden for Joe Biden isn't going to go over so well. We said we would not do any new international deals going forward. And that's, hey, a big part of why I'm so involved in politics right now is because that's what I did. I did our international deals. Unlike Hunter Biden, we were actually international business people before daddy got into politics. Okay, Hunter Biden magically becomes an international business the second his father's pulling the purse strings. Okay, that's the difference. Well, now, people don't talk about that. They don't want to talk about that. from China. He took that trip on Imagine on Donald Trump Jr. took one and a half dollars from China after traveling on Air Force One with his dad to go do Imagine I took one and a half dollars. Yeah. It would be outrage. He's telling the truth. It would. It would. And it, I think it's fair for the Trumps to point out they were billionaires before Daddy got elected, and Hunter Biden used his dad's fame to get elected. And he, fairness to Hunter, his dad's only ever had one job, that of a politician, but still he profited from it in a way the Democrats accused the Trumps of profiting from it. What's fair is fair. They, they accuse the Trumps of this. Now it's time to turn the spotlight on the Bidens. It is Eric Erickson here, and please do consider joining our army of activists. Let me explain this one to you. I've been talking about it a lot because I feel very strongly about it. I don't believe my job should be just to make you think or even keep you entertained or make you laugh or keep you company or whatever. It should also be uh, to educate you and motivate you to take action uh, when necessary in politics. It does you and me no good for you to scream at the radio. Or, or yesterday, I was I was in line at Publix, uh, at my local Publix, and a guy listens to me uh, on my affiliate in Macon, WMAC, and uh, had heard me on Friday and had questions and uh, wanted to know why Brian Kemp was doing such and such with gangs and uh, why he thought it was, why there was a gang problem and, and what wasn't he telling us and stuff. And I'm having this conversation, a very polite conversation. I, I, I never mind. And I just thought, you know, you should be in the army of activists that we have here. And all you do is you text the word army to 33777. And I can send you a text message or an email, depending on, on the importance of it, so that you can contact your legislator. So like this guy, he was so fired up on, he thought it was a waste of time in the budget. And I was trying to explain to him that the governor has told me and others have uh, that there really are gang issues in the state that aren't getting major exposure. Um, they're not getting major exposure from the media, and a lot of it because it's happening behind the scenes and they can't disclose it yet. A lot of it involving drug trafficking and human trafficking through the state, not violent crime. And I, trying to explain that to him, that that's the issue here. You don't see the violence reflected in the stats because the gang issues aren't violence at this point. Um, they have they moved out of turf wars into drug trafficking and human trafficking and stuff, and, and that's where the real problems are. And he, he, he first didn't know, but then was suddenly fired up about it on that side, that, okay, maybe there's a problem, and he should support the governor. I'm like, just just sign up for the the activity. You want to? I, I make it as easy as possible for you to contact your legislature, 
when when the need arises. With this adoption reform package that's coming through the legislature, we're going to need all hands on deck to help get the adoption reform passed because the speaker is opposed to a commission to to modernize our adoption laws in the state. In part, I'm told, because he's afraid that Christians may be able to get a, a religious liberty exception in the adoption laws to protect faith-based adoption agencies, and he doesn't want that. So please, text ARMY to 33777, sign up for this activist ARMY so that we can all call together across the state of Georgia and overwhelm these people and get them to hear conservatives from the state. And the same with federal stuff, too. I don't just use it for local stuff. I use it for federal stuff as well. There's no need to call Kelly Leffler and David Perdue and tell them to defend the president in impeachment. They're going to do it anyway. Uh, but again, just text ARMY to 33777. Now, um, my apologies if, if you got kids in the car. I'm not going to tell you to turn your radio on because this actually is really, really funny. A deaf man is suing Pornhub, an adult video content site with all sorts of explicit things. Why? <laughs> I'm sorry. There's no, there's no closed captioning. That's right. The, the the deaf guy is is suing the adult film site because they don't have closed captioning. What would the closed captioning say exactly? Um. Oh. Oh. I'm sorry. I can't. I'm going to get myself thrown off the radio. I guess it's time for me to come back on air, isn't it? Welcome. It's Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show, across the state of Georgia and beyond, streaming across that series of tubes known as the Internet. We will take your phone calls if you want to call in. 877-97-ERIC, E-R-I-C-K, 877-97-ERIC. That translates to 877-973-7425. I don't know if you know this or not. It was a really big deal over the weekend for reasons I can't fathom, and I only want to address it here to make a larger point. Michelle Obama has released her 2020 workout playlist. I believe on Spotify. Yes, that's right. You heard me. Michelle Obama has released her 2020 workout playlist. None of you should care about that. Not a, not a single one of you should. I, I don't. Uh, the only reason I bring it up is because uh, we, we've gone through this, this uh, Prince Harry and, and Yoko Markle story of breaking up the band in Great Britain and the American obsession with royalty. And the Obamas are treated as royalty by a secular press that opposes, uh, supposedly supposes, opposes dynasties, but the reality is they only oppose Republican ones. The media's willingness to embrace the Obamas as royalty, previously the Clintons royalty, and, and God help us, the, the Kennedys as some sort of American royalty, uh, while never giving any sort of spotlight to, I mean, frankly, even the Romneys, but definitely the Bushes, 
uh, is is and, and their treatment of the the entirety of the Trump family is really a a perverse uh, reminder of just how hypocritical the media is. None of us should want this celebrity status of politicians and their wives, and yet we have it, and uh, that that feeds into the the impeachment narrative that we all deal with as the media makes good guys and bad guys out of the people who tell the media what they want to hear. Inevitably, the the people the media wants to hear from are people on the left. And uh, the whole system goes kablooey as a result as we start embracing this level of royalty in the United States for politicians and their wives. Now, I will get off that soapbox because we have polling, polling to discuss from Georgia, no less. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has... (laughs) I pause because I think... Do I say urinal custom? No, not really, because because I'm they're on my good side these days. The you know say what you will about it, and I got a lot to say about the AJC. I've been deeply critical of of the AJC, but I got to tell you they have really done a good job of trying to cover the state as thoroughly as possible, particularly Atlanta and under the Gold Dome. And so much of my prep for this show now comes from the AJC. Because they're filling a void, and they recognize, I think, the lapse of, of local media, the collapse of it. Now, unfortunately, I think that there are some biases that creep into reporting and uh, editorial decisions made, and I try to call them out on that. Uh, I think some of their polling is not fantastic. It certainly skews to the Democrats. Their polls do. I mean, take the poll of Brian Kemp with a 57% approval rating in the AJC poll, and they oversampled college graduates in Atlanta. Which means, and I've seen private polling that has the governor over sixty percent. So there's definitely a there's definitely something there um, with when the governor is at fifty. I think it's fifty four, fifty seven percent in the AJC poll that oversampled Democrats. I mean, honestly, uh, you can tell that there was an oversampling of the Democrats because President Trump got what forty eight point nine percent of the popular vote in Georgia in twenty sixteen, and according to the AJC poll, he only got forty one percent of the people sampled. That's clearly a skew towards the Democrats in the polling, and yet Brian Kemp was above fifty, solidly above fifty percent, which means he really probably is solidly above sixty percent in popular in the state, which is good for him. People forget, you know, Mike Huckabee uh, got no black support when he ran for governor of Arkansas the first time and got 80% of the black vote the second time he ran. Uh, And yet the media never likes to talk about that because, oh my gosh, he's a Republican. This can't be so. And yet it was. I see the same thing happening for Brian Kemp. He's defined himself as his own man. So I, I, I say all that because you should take note when the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, with polling that tends to skew towards the Democrats, has numbers overwhelmingly in favor of the president, you should pay attention to it. According to the AJC, 57%, 57% of voters in Georgia say that the president should not be removed from office. 50% of voters say the president did nothing by which he should be removed from office. 46% say he did do something impeachable, but he this should be left to the ballot box. Can we just stop one moment? Let's let's meditate on this, please. We we, we need to meditate on this moment. Now why? Because you've got 46% of voters in Georgia who say the president did something impeachable. 
but 57% say that the president should not be removed from office, that in fact, this should be dealt with at the ballot box. If that's the case, that means there are essentially a lot of people out there who believe that the Democrats are trying to undermine the right of the voters to have a say in politics. See, I would submit to you, I, I mean, I really, I, I would argue this point with anybody, but I'll just, I'll throw it out here to you. And if you disagree, feel free to call me, uh, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, but I think there are things that would be impeachable last year that are not impeachable this year. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that impeachment was designed to remove from office a president who had seriously abused his power, committed high crimes or misdemeanors, and there are things that the president does that he should not do that when he can't be held accountable by the voters, then Congress should act. But there are things that the president does where he can be held accountable by the voters, and the voters should decide if they're okay with it or not. And this is one of them. The Ukraine phone call is one of them. The voters have an opportunity in less than a year to be able to hold the president accountable if they so choose or not. And one of the reasons the Democrats are rushing this as quickly as they are is because they're deeply concerned that the voters won't hold him accountable to it and will, in fact, re- elect him. And so the Democrats believe they need to stop. I mean, here's let, let me play this clip for you. This is Mary Catherine Ham, friend of mine, um, big UGA fan, by the way, Mary Catherine, and she was on CNN over the weekend. Um, because I think their argument, which I think has some merit, is why didn't the House subpoena the witnesses that they wanted? They did not bother even to subpoena uh, Bolton. I think that was their job. I think it could have gone, been adjudicated through the courts. They did not want it done that way because they wanted the timing to be faster, and then Pelosi sat on it for several weeks, which I still don't understand the, the wisdom and behind that tactic. she also said, we don't have think, time for the courts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she said, we don't have time. This is so urgent, argument. we don't have time. That was the explicit yeah. argument. Um, as far as bringing this as an impeachable uh, event, I think it doesn't have to be a crime. The House can make a calculation on that. I think it is wiser to be a crime, um, lest you bring down the bar too low, and that's why I think you're seeing it pretty stagnant in the polls when it comes to removal. Yeah, in fact, removal is now ahead of uh, throwing him out of office in the polling. Here's Anna Cabrera on CNN to Maxine Waters. Man, Maxine Waters is a piece of work. Let me move to the second article, obstruction of Congress. The president's team points out the Democrats did not try to force and enforce the subpoenas in court, and they write to the contrary when one subpoena uh, recipient sought a declaratory judgment as to the validity of the subpoena he had received. House Democrats quickly withdrew the subpoena to prevent the court from issuing a ruling. And that's that's true, right? Democrats withdrew the court subpoena for Kupperman, for example, and never even subpoenaed Bolton, who Democrats say is is such a crucial witness now. Was that a mistake? No, it was not a mistake. Uh, the the Congress of the United States and the House of Representatives have not only subpoenaed, they have requested, they have asked for voluntary efforts uh, on behalf of those that they would like uh, to have come before the uh, uh, Judiciary Committee and uh, give their statements and to tell what they know about what is going on. And so whether it's a subpoena or it's a request or whether or not uh, the Judiciary Committee has reached out uh, to all of those people that we think uh, have some role in this. 
we have done our work. We have done what is necessary. And but just Democrats because have not what kept you, it going through the court process. The court process is extremely slow. For example, I have subpoenaed information from Deutsche Bank about the finances of the President of the United States. And we have gone through the lower courts. We have gone through the Court of Appeals. We are not getting heard until March. The, 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 the Supreme Court will hear my subpoenas in March. The court takes its time. Right. Except you could ask for expedition because of impeachment. Responding. And so I think we have moved uh, in a very credible way to get the information uh, that we have needed. Uh, the president has blocked that. The president has used his so-called executive power to intimidate. And he has not allowed the witnesses to come forward. And so he's obstructed the, the Congress of the United States. He has obstructed justice. Hey, I, I know there are Democrats listening to this nodding their head, but it's it's simply not true. If, if facts matter and truth is true, that's not true, and that's not a fact. In fact, uh, when the House went to federal to the federal district court in Washington D.C. and said, "Hey, uh, we want to we want to subpoena Don McGahn, and it's related to impeachment," the court sped the process up. It was a week. Uh, they said he had to, and then the uh, McGahn team wanted to appeal, and they gave him two weeks to appeal, and said, "This is about impeachment. You got to get a move on. You got to hurry up and make your appeal." And then the Democrats dropped it. It is extraordinary to have the entire matter dealt with in less than 30 days in a federal court, and yet it was possible. It was possible. And you establish the precedent that for impeachment you do this, and then suddenly it makes all the others even more expeditious. But they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to do it. They chose not to make that fight. And now they want the Senate to do their job, and, and it's showing in the public poll. And I mean, for God's sakes, here in Georgia, you got 57% of the public wants this done with, wants the president to stay in office and wants to deal with it at the polls. And this is a state the Democrats have tried to get. By the way, you know the relevance here is that Georgia is not a swing state. You've got the Mason-Dixon polling, a highly credible pollster with a good sample in Georgia of registered voters saying that the, uh, the the president leads all of the Democrats. He leads Joe Biden by seven percentage points. He leads Elizabeth Warren by 14 percentage points. It's a well-sampled balance, unlike the AJC, that skewed towards the Democrats. This one's more balanced and more reflective of what happened in 2016. It only slightly goes to the Democrats with registered voters. That's really good news for the president. On top of that, you've got 57% of voters in this state do not want the president removed from office. That's really good news for the president. And the Democrats screwed this up completely. Here's Sarah Fagan, in a ABC News' political person, talking about this on, on This Week with George Stephanopoulos. Um, having said that, you know, let's sort of consider, though, the, the politics of the presidential election. And uh, the president, having had so much thrown at him since being put in office. Uh, and we see his favorable rating going up during this impeachment. And yes, there may be a few Republicans who have challenges, but there's going to be a bunch of Democrats who have challenges as well. Because we're assuming that these witnesses are going to be one-sided, mm -hmm. that we're only going to have the president's witnesses, his staff. Republicans are not going to allow witnesses, uh, uh, the Democrats to select it'll, it'll be Correct. You're not going to be able to just have Democrats witnesses. This is going to be a spectacle. It's going to be a big spectacle. It's going to be a fun spectacle. It's going to be a, 
spectacle designed for TV in which senators will play only a very limited role, and that's bad for them. Frankly, it's probably good for the country to not have the Democrats showboating during impeachment. And it's really good for the president that the polling now actually pretty decisively shows people just want to deal with this at the ballot box. It's time to move on. Nancy Pelosi holding on to impeachment. Despite all the media fawning about what a strategic genius she was, turns out she wasn't. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. It just... I'm going to give you all a laugh at my expense. So <laughs> I was in Atlanta uh, last week. You know, normally I broadcast this show uh, from a studio in Macon. Uh, we, by the miracle of the Internet and satellites, uh, get it to my flagship in Athens. And from there, it's distributed to every corner of the state. Uh, radio stations all over the state of Georgia airing the show. Uh, well, there's one that airs in delay and the rest of them live. And But I had to be in Atlanta last week, and I was up there uh, Wednesday evening, and then on Thursday I interviewed the governor. Thursday night, my friend Junior Howard, who is the uh, RNC committee woman for Georgia, she's running for re-election for that post, and I emceed an event for her. And then had a, a lunch on Friday, and I had to do an interview on Saturday morning in Atlanta. So I just got a hotel room, and I stayed. And so a friend of mine and I decided he was in a hotel on Friday as well. We were going to go out. So we went, there's a fantastic restaurant up in Roswell, Georgia called Table and Main. It is my favorite restaurant in the state. I absolutely love it. Uh, and he had never been, so we took him there. I took him there. The owner knew I was coming, and they have an, just an incredible bourbon selection, and they'd gotten in a very rare bottle. So we're sampling that, and I'm like, i got to drive. I, I, I can't do this. Um, we get back to our hotel, and we're like, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to go somewhere? you want to do something? So we just decided to sit on the couch. Ready Player One was on HBO, and we fell asleep. Two middle-aged dudes sitting on a couch in a hotel room, watching TV, falling asleep. That is that's how exciting my life has become. And you know, I'm I'm actually totally okay with that. It was it was fantastic. Um, we we just we zoned out and didn't have to think about anything. Didn't have to talk business or anything. We just visited, enjoyed each other's company, and fell asleep, which was fantastic. <laughs> I got to go to. I, I've got to actually be gone this Friday. Uh, I will be on uh, HBO Friday night with Bill Maher. I do that a couple times a year. They asked me if I'd come out for this coming Friday show, so I will. And I expect to have a, another exciting uh, Friday night where I go do TV and go back to my hotel room and go back to sleep. Uh, now, of course, the time change is different there because you get off um, Bill Maher's show. It's, it's on the West Coast. It's filmed live for an hour. It's done at 11 p.m. Eastern, but it's 8 p.m. in L.A. And so all the restaurants are full and you're hungry and you haven't eaten. I'm, I'm phobic about eating before I do something like that. So I got to go out and find a meal. And so I'm sure I'll go eat and then go back to my hotel and fall asleep. One thing I did not do this weekend that I regret not doing, but I had friends at the house and we were sitting on the front porch last night, even in the cold, is watching the, the Chiefs and the 49ers uh, make their way to the Super Bowl together. I'm actually interested in watching this game. I'm not a huge NFL fan. 
I, in fact, I haven't been to a Falcons game in a couple of years, and I really do need to go to a Falcons game. Uh, but I haven't been in, in several years, and I, I love college football tremendously. I, I really do. I can sit and watch college football games all day. I've just never been a huge NFL fan, and most of my friends are the exact opposite. They love the NFL and not college. But I'm excited. If you haven't heard, uh, the Chiefs and the 49ers are headed to the Super Bowl, and it should actually be a really good game. This is the first. So the Chiefs and the Packers, if I recall, were in the very first Super Bowl. And uh, now the the Packers, of course, failed. As a buddy of mine put it last night, if you want to see Aaron Rodgers in the Super Bowl, you're going to have to wait for a State Farm ad. <laughs> a friend of mine is a huge Packers fan and blocked me on Twitter last night in protest after I retweeted that. So in any event, uh, we will move on to other things now. Amtrak. For those of you in North Georgia, you probably want to pay attention to this one. Amtrak wants to put in two lines to Atlanta, one of which they want to build a line. Uh, Amtrak wants to build a high-speed line from Atlanta to Charlotte, North Carolina. And when I say high-speed line, they want it to be under two hours to get from Atlanta to Charlotte. They've got three plans. Ironically, the the one that they want uh, is the medium-cost plan. Uh, The one that they're pushing is... um, the one that they're pushing is the the one where they build their own line. It would go up through Gainesville and, and Clarksville and Tacoa and uh, Clayton and and cut through that way through the mountains. They would they would buy the land and and build themselves their own high speed rail line. But the latest addition is to Nashville, and they essentially want a line on a CSX line that goes up. 75 from Atlanta to Nashville via Dalton and Chattanooga and then cuts over through the mountains to Nashville. Here's the thing. It takes me from my house in Macon. It takes me under five hours from Macon, Georgia to drive to Nashville through Atlanta traffic. From Atlanta, it's, uh, what, a four-hour drive to Nashville? It's not a bad drive. I've done it a number of times. Uh, Russell Moore and the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission folks have me up to Nashville every once in a while for stuff, and I go up there. The train ride would take six and a half hours minimum, minimum, to go from Atlanta to Nashville. It would it would take less time to get on a Greyhound to go from Atlanta to Nashville than it would to take this train ride. Who in God's name thinks this is a good idea other than a government-subsidized railroad? It's crazy. You really can call if you want. I won't bite hard. I am still hung up on this Amtrak story, and there's other stuff I want to get to, but is this not the height of government arrogance with a subsidized national train company that wants to put in a train line from Atlanta to Nashville that will take longer to get there by train than by car? And of course, if you listen to the Amtrak people, well, they'll say, oh, but road congestion between Atlanta and Nashville is increasingly going to make that four-hour trip. Hang on, I, I want to see right right now. Hang on. I'm I'm going to do this. Uh, yes, we're, we're going to launch an experiment. Um, so I want to go to Nashville, Tennessee. And I want, yes, yeah, from my house right now, from where I am located in Macon, Georgia, right now it is four hours and 40 minutes. Four hours and 40 minutes at this time of day to get from here to Nashville, Tennessee. And this train from Atlanta to Nashville 
would take six hours and 30 minutes minimum. Now, hang on. Uh, what about my work office? My work office is in downtown, a little midtown Atlanta. From my work office to Nashville, it would be three hours and 30 minutes. So my work office, the reason I picked my work office, just so you understand this, is because it is right across the street from the Amtrak station. Right across the street from the Amtrak station. And it takes three hours and 32 minutes right now from my office, right across the street from where that train would be leaving, to get to downtown Nashville. And that train would take six hours and 30 minutes. That's stupid. That is stupid, 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 stupid. Okay. I will get off the soapbox because we, we have other news that we need to deal with, including while I'm on the Georgia stuff, uh, let me read you this from Chris Joyner at the AJC. A year ago, newly installed Governor Brian Kemp made reforming how the state handles sexual harassment complaints one of his first acts, putting State Inspector General Deborah Wallace as the administration's point person on the issue. This year, Kemp wants to expand Wallace's office, adding money and new staff that give her new tools to investigate alleged harassment in state government. Kemp's proposed fiscal 2021 budget unveiled last week adds $435,182 to fund five new positions in the small government agency. The increase represents a 43% budget increase for the Inspector General's office at a time other agencies are being asked to cut their budgets. Why? Because he wants to be able to investigate sexual harassment claims and other issues related to personnel within government. Now, the inspector general said the increase would pay for Bethany Wetzel, the general counsel for the office, and a second auditor and two full-time investigators. In an executive order signed last January on his first day in office, Kemp required state agencies to report all sexual harassment complaints to the state inspector general and gave the state inspector general authority to independently review the complaints and assign an independent investigator to the case if needed. The inspector general, Ms. Wallace, has said finding people in state government willing to investigate claims in another department has been challenging, and she has advocated for a team of independent inspectors to handle that task or investigators. Since Kemp's split, listen to this, listen to this. Since Brian Kemp's new policy took effect in March, the inspector general's office in Georgia has recorded nearly 150 sexual harassment complaints from government offices across the state. Now, not all of them are legit. But if we presume that half of them are, that is 75 sexual harassment complaints in the state of Georgia for state bureaucrats. And I can see that. I have heard me some stories Good Lord, have I heard stories over time of, of uh, badly behaved government bureaucrats who do not think they will ever be held accountable, political appointees and the like who don't think they'll be held accountable. That is, I mean, the, the, the stories that I have heard over time are just crazy of what happens within the government. Really, really, really um, just, I'm glad, listen. There are people I know who are Republicans who are upset with Brian Kemp for stuff like this, saying this sounds like he's playing to the crowd. No. Can we acknowledge that there's a real problem within the state government with some of this stuff? And it's gone on for years. It's gone on for years. I Back in the day, I'm not giving away confidences here. 
back in the day, I am friends with a woman who worked for a political appointee, not an elected official, but a political appointee. And one of her jobs was every day at the close of business to give him a massage of his shoulders as he sat on her desk, not his, her desk, slumped over her desk while she massaged his shoulders. What started as, oh, I got a crick in my neck, can you help, became a daily occurrence. And she did it without complaint, feeling awkward every day doing it because he was a political appointee and there was no one for her to complain to. So let us not pretend stuff like this doesn't happen. And I'm grateful to the governor wanting to pursue this. It's going to be interesting to see what the state legislature does because, good Lord, and maybe if he puts on a rider that some of the money will go to strippers and blow, the state legislature will be all over. Because have you heard the stories about the state legislature? i got to tell you, I was up there last week, last Wednesday. The state of the state speech was on Thursday. I could not find a hotel room on Wednesday night in Atlanta. I had to stay all the way up in Alpharetta because all the hotel rooms were full, people in town for the legislature and the governor. And you will not be surprised to learn that, that all the strip clubs were full because that's what happens. The lobbyists take the male legislators out and they misbehave at night. I actually ran a guy for office one time. I'll never forget this. Ran a guy for office one time. Got elected. I was very good at getting people elected. And I uh, had a, a, a powerful politician in the state of Georgia actually called me and said, I know you got this guy elected, and now you need to get him unelected. Uh, you need to find someone to run against him. And I did. Um, and it, it was it was a mess because uh, that guy he enjoyed the trappings of being in the state legislature away from his family a little bit too much. And uh, on it went. This sort of stuff happens. Now, in other news related to the state and the AJC polling, you got the AJC polling 57% of Georgians across party lines, actually, uh, do not want the president removed from office. They want to settle in at the ballot box. Well... Turns out that an overwhelming majority of Georgians support a casino in the state. I got to tell you, I'm opposed to a casino in the state. Now, I support sports gambling in the state. I'm totally down with I don't gamble on sports, and I'm not opposed to casinos. In fact, I'm, I'm actually planning a guy's trip to Vegas right now. Oh, I wasn't supposed to say that. Um <laughs> Because some of the people going are listening, and it was going to be a surprise. But nonetheless, um, I, I'm I'm not opposed to casinos. I'm not. Uh, I, I like going to Las Vegas. I do not gamble. Well, I take that back. I gambled once because I was with a buddy, and he made me. And it was his money. It wasn't mine. I would never gamble with my money. I'm, I'm not a gambler. If the lottery gets over $300 million, I'll, I'll spend $2 on a lottery ticket. That's about it. I work too hard for my money to throw it away. Never bet against the house. The odds are in favor of the house. So I try to avoid it. But nonetheless... I'm not opposed to casinos, but I am opposed to them in Georgia. And an overwhelming majority of <laughs> no time soon. Yes, but no time soon. I'm getting texts now about the Vegas trip. Um, so in any event, distracted by Philip. <laughs> the... Um, the problem with casinos is, as Kasim Reed and others have said, Vegas is in a desert for a reason. And the reason Vegas is in a desert is, uh, well, people can go to Vegas, have a good time, and what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. A number of states, I'm from Louisiana, and Louisiana built a number of casinos, riverboat casinos along the river. They had to stay in the river. Then they built the Harris Casino in New Orleans, and it's not that great. Y'all, I'm sorry, but... I've just never been impressed with the Harris casinos. They're they're kind of like they're they're cheap. 
that they cater towards the lowest common denominator. I listen, I I'm I don't want to sound disparaging to people, but you, every single one of you, even the people offended, you know exactly what I'm talking about. At least MGM like classes the place up. The the one outside of uh, D.C. is actually a very nice facility. The problem, though, is that they tend to kill the local nightlife. They tend to increase uh, rates of addiction and and prostitution and drugs, and uh, they kill local businesses and local entertainment venues and local restaurants, and they're just bad for local economies. State legislatures across the state or across the nation have always been convinced that they can bet against the House and run the House, and in fact, the House runs them. Uh, you know, I am told actually, so so for example, in middle Georgia, there was a ring of illegal gambling operations that, that started, and one of the local prosecutors in middle Georgia uh, wound up arrested, having a bunch of people arrested, and, and a good bunch of them were going to jail, illegal gambling operations in the state. And of course, it was typically a, it was a bunch of poor people who were playing those games where you get the little tickets, and it was just it was all a bunch of scam stuff and people getting taken advantage of. And now the 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 companies whose machines were involved are spending a whole bunch of money to try to get the DA ousted for enforcing the law. And we're going to see that if you get a casino in the state. Listen. I realize that most of my listeners probably gamble. And the AJC says something like 70% of voters are in favor of having a casino in the state. And I'm telling you, just because you want it doesn't mean it's a good idea. And there is plenty, plenty of data out there that highlights just how damaging it is to local economies and families and, and everything else. Uh, I'm I'm not going to browbeat you in it because I would be somewhat of a hypocrite because I I don't I don't mind going to casinos in Vegas, uh, gambling is not my thing. But there's so much more to do. But that's kind of the problem with building one, particularly if you were to build it in Atlanta or Savannah. Uh, think of the local venues in Atlanta that would be hurt by a casino because the legislation as pending would require that it have an entertainment venue and a certain portion of its revenue come from entertainment. Well, that would kill the fox. If you've never been to the Fox in downtown Atlanta, it is a beautiful, beautiful venue for music concerts and performances. And a, a casino would be the death of the Fox. It would be the, the death of the Verizon Amphitheater in, in Atlanta. Um, all sorts of these venues that musicians go to would now go to this casino. And then there's the restaurants. I, I'm a foodie. I love restaurants. I love going to Roswell. You go to Table in Maine, go to Osteria, Matone, go to Salt, uh, go to Rouge, um, go to Little Alley Steak in Roswell, Georgia. Fantastic row of restaurants there. The casino would kill that business as well because a certain portion under the state law, a certain portion must come from food and beverage. So they would they would up their game on that. I, I got to tell you guys. I, I'm not opposed to a casino, but here in the state of Georgia, I am absolutely opposed to a casino in the state. Go to Cherokee. I don't care. Go to Cherokee. I know people go to Cherokee. We've got flights that come into Macon now, charter flights that fly people down to Biloxi to casinos there. And I'm okay with that. If you want to go, go. I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm very nimby on this issue, not in my backyard. But I'm not opposed to sports betting in the state. And the majority of residents in the state are okay with sports betting as well. And I suspect that could be a compromise there. Um, allow sports betting in the state, but not the physical casino in the state. Uh, and, and in so doing, what you're doing is you're allowing people to go to uh, the TP 
or to Mercedes-Benz or to State Farm Arena. And while the Hawks are playing, the Falcons are playing, or the Braves are playing, you can place bets on games. I've got a ton of friends who do sports betting. I am not enough into sports to to do that. Uh, I've got a, a buddy of mine who works with me who he does it is is good at. I'm I would be I would literally lose more money there than sitting at a blackjack table in a casino. I, I don't understand it. I don't understand any of it. Uh, but I've got a ton of friends who do it, and they do it on a regular basis, and they do it online, and might as well let them do it at, at the venues. It would be an extra attraction at those venues that would keep people coming. Uh, it would be different enough from a casino because with a casino, they're building in other venues into the casino that deprive business from local businesses in Atlanta. Why is it that our legislature seems almost ritualistically um, willing to scuttle successful business in Georgia by attracting business from out of state? Whether it's a casino or a Fortune 500 company, our legislature, Republicans and Democrats together, are really brilliant at, at decapitating local Georgia businesses by bringing in outside competitors with state funds and propping them up. And that's exactly what would happen with the casino. And that is one of the many reasons I'm opposed to it. But again, the polling uh, it shows that everybody supports it. I, I am in the minority when it comes to having a casino in Georgia. What I find very interesting is that the poorer you are in the state, according to the AJC polling, the poorer you are in the state, the more likely you are to want a casino. Ponder that. The phone number, if you want to call in, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. That's it. We got other stuff. We... uh, What... (laughs) Um, We've got other stuff to talk about. Uh, Trading messages with colleagues who who are listening on delay, so they still think I'm in commercial break. Uh, I am not in commercial break. And we got to move on. Uh, part of the issue moving forward with the governor's agenda is going to be the adoption fight. I talked to him last week about it. If you'll recall, uh, one of the things the governor said last week was that he uh, wants to boost the child tax credit when it comes to adoption. He wants to um, he wants to give a he wants to raise the what am i trying to say here the credit from two thousand dollars to six thousand dollars that's what it is and he also wants to lower the adoption age Uh, not the age at which someone can be adopted but the age at which someone can adopt someone else in georgia to adopt a child you have to be 25 years or older and he wants to lower it to 21. Let me play you. We got some time. I want to want to go back to the governor's conversation from uh, last Friday when he was talking about a state of the state planning. You mentioned. Let me just read the line. As a pro-life governor, I believe we need to protect the unborn and the born. We have to defend those in the womb and then champion those when they leave the delivery room. Uh, incredibly sad. How many children are abandoned in our hospitals? Hundreds every year, living, breathing babies, discarded, forgotten innocent, full of potential, now wards of the state. We've talked about this in the past. You were at uh, the Clark's Christmas Kids uh, fundraiser for foster kids. We've got a lot of kids who are wards of the state, and adoption continues domestically and internationally. The, the cost just continues to spiral out of control, taking a lot of people out of the market who could adopt. Well, I got when I got back down to the office right after I finished my speech and shook a few hands i picked my phone up and one of the first texts i had was from an individual that him and his wife were going through the adoption process right now and he said i'm so glad y'all are taking this up 
he said, I've been so frustrated. And I think he actually saw a post that Jeff Duncan had posted after the eggs and issues breakfast um, saying he was going to support us in our efforts, which I certainly appreciate and never, never doubted that. But he was like, I'm so glad y'all are taking this on. My wife and I are going through this right now, and it's so frustrating. And that's what's happening out there. There was a lot of really good work that got done two years ago, as I mentioned in the speech today, thanking Governor Deal and the legislature. But there's more we can do to, to reduce the costs, reduce the red tape, and make it easier for these kids to get adopted and make it easier on the parents to adopt them. Uh, but we still have a lot of work to do in the future as well, which is why we're going to do the commission. So two of the proposals, the uh, triple the adoption tax credit from $2,000 to $6,000 and also lower the age at which you can adopt from 25 to 21. Which just gets more people into the system to make them eligible to adopt. To adopt. And then the, the way the tax credit is going to work, it's going to happen in the first few years of, of the adoption. Uh, so that'll allow people to help offset some of the upfront costs, and then it'll go back to the the tax credit that's already in there now, the two thousand dollars until they become of legal age. Two thousand to six thousand, the lowering the age and the commission. The Speaker of the House is opposed to the commission, and I am told by people in the House one of the reasons he's opposed to the commission is because he's afraid that there, there's an issue brewing in Georgia among faith-based adoption agencies wanting some faith-based protections. Uh, there have been several attempts around the country now to shut down faith-based adoption agencies because the faith-based adoption agencies only adopt to either people within their religious denomination or only uh, allow married couples to adopt. Uh, heterosexual married couples and gay rights activists are opposed to that and they don't want legislation protecting these faith-based agencies and the speaker of the house is opposed as well uh, from what i'm told he thinks that this commission could be run away with conservative interests uh, which is somewhat crazy because what you you got to have happen is have a commission to sit down and really look comprehensively at georgia's adoption laws because we haven't in a very long time this is going to be the fight this year and I hope you're willing to text the word ARMY to 33777 and become an activist and, and be willing to light up your state house and state senate member over this issue when the time comes. Because uh, I believe very, very strongly that if we are to uh, improve the situation in foster care in the state, we have got to improve the efficiencies by which people can adopt kids in the state. The foster care system needs help. The adoption system in the state needs help. Uh, it needs the legislature to actually sit down. And you know, I, I would propose the same thing on the film tax credit, by the way. Set up a group, look at it this year, and report back uh, for session next year. Take it out of the election year where everybody's trying to, to, um, to, to set themselves apart in the election and deal with it next year when there's not an election. Give us a, a year to study it. And then make up make up some decisions, uh, make, make up some minds, and they don't want to do that. I think this commission is the way to try to neutralize some of the issues. They should do it. Um, I mean, heck, let the speaker appoint a couple of people who can sabotage the agenda of the faith-based adoption agencies if he wants, but set up the commission and get it done. Um, and, and I hope you're willing to speak up on the governor's behalf on this. We need a comprehensive look at uh, adoption in the state. It has gotten very expensive and very bureaucratic to adopt a child in the state. Uh, the phone number here, 877-97-ERIC. We'll be back.
Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. It is six after the hour. This is the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, 404. Well, nope, that's not it. It's 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425 is the phone number. And I want to talk about Virginia right now. A buddy of mine is actually texting me pictures from on the ground in Virginia right now. Um, massive, massive protest, a rally, I should say, in Richmond, the state capital in Virginia, and uh, they are there to defend their Second Amendment rights, the legislature considering a host of gun restriction measures. The overwhelming majority of counties in Virginia have passed uh, gun sanctuary legislation, sanctuary counties and sanctuary cities where they will not enforce what they believe are unconstitutional gun control measures, confiscations, and things like that. The media, particularly NBC News, seems willfully intent on distorting what is actually happening there. I want to play for you a video. This from uh, Gabe Gutierrez, an NBC News reporter. And I want to play for you the audio and see if you can hear what's going on. United States Pledge of Allegiance. The crowd is saying the Pledge of Allegiance. And Gabe Gutierrez, reporter for NBC News, is tweeting chants of, we will not comply, from gun rights protesters in Charleston. That's that's how he's characterizing the Pledge of Allegiance. That, that we will not comply... Uh, that that's how he's claiming that they're doing it. This is you've also got another NBC News reporter who last night, uh, and I can't remember that guy's name now, but last night the other NBC News reporter claimed that it was a uh, white supremacist or white nationalist rally happening in, in Richmond, and he was admonishing his fellow reporters that they better cover it accurately, not as a gun rights rally, but as a white nationalist rally. Because they, they didn't need to help white nationalists shape the narrative. So if, for those of you who don't know, um, Virginia last year went overwhelmingly for the Democrats. They have been able to uh, take control of the Virginia legislature, which they had not been able to completely do in more than a decade. And they immediately began promising gun control measures and restrictions. The governor specifically wants to limit uh, the size of magazines for uh, ARs. He wants to limit the purchases of guns to once a month. And he wants to expand on background checks. That is his stated agenda. But you will recall that the governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam, had a blackface scandal where he refused to resign. And everyone called on him to resign. And his way of getting out of it was to not resign, but to double down and to do everything that liberals wanted. And now even the Washington Post has come out and said, geez, we love this Ralph Northam guy. Can't believe we ever called on him to resign. He's such a good guy. Look at all this progressive agenda he's pushing. Well, a a far more progressive agenda being pushed by Ralph Northam now to save his uh, job than anything else. 
And so the, the crowd loves him, loves him. And remember, this is the guy who said that if, if women want to have an abortion, that they could give birth to the child, let the child be made comfortable, and then the woman and the doctor could decide what to do. He actually said that. Uh, he, he actually fundamentally did say that, even though they all deny that he said it. He, he actually denies, and the media has, has covered for Ralph Northam. Ralph Northam actually did say on a video interview that if a woman wanted an abortion, a late-term abortion, what they could do is the woman could um, give birth to the child. I'm trying to find the audio here, and, and I kept it. But man, I got a lot of audio. I, I may not be able to. Um, that the the woman could keep it. The woman could make the baby comfortable. And then after making the baby comfortable, they could decide to terminate the child. That was actually the decision made. And it's horrifying that we would get to this point where the media also is covering for Northam. And now having defended infanticide, and that's what it was, infanticide, he is now wanting to confiscate people's guns or at least limit their ability to purchase guns. And so he's being heralded as a hero by the left in Virginia and in the national media. They think it's wonderful that he's doing these sorts of things now. And so there's a huge gun rally at the Virginia Capitol today. People from all over the country, but most especially from Virginia, have showed up to make their case to protect the Second Amendment, to have a peaceful rally. Now, it is true that some white nationalists and neo-Nazis have decided they're going to show up too. And the crowd, by and large, at this moment, is doing their level best to make sure that the neo-Nazis and the white supremacists are shut out, are crowded out, and they're going to have to do this. Y'all, let me take you back in the not-so-way-back machine to 2010. I was on CNN at the time. The Tea Party movement was starting. And if you'll recall, one of the very first things the Tea Party movement did was in the August recesses of 2009 um, in 2010, they started showing up at town halls for members of Congress to demand opposition to Obamacare. This would have been August of 2009. And during that month of August 2009, there were nine people arrested at town halls around the country. And the media made it a really big deal that here come the Tea Party groups and people are now getting arrested around the country uh, at these town halls. Well, it turns out that of the nine, Mary Catherine Hamm, who's now on CNN, is the one who documented this back in 2009. Of the nine people arrested at tea halls, tea, tea halls, at, at uh, Tea Party rallies at town halls in August of 2009, uh, nine of them arrested, eight of them were union activists who were trying to undermine the conservatives who were showing up at the town halls. One of them was a conservative who punched a union activist. Uh, the other eight of them were union activists. The media never wanted to cover that. And when it turned out that it was a bunch of leftists who were the ones getting arrested, they dropped the story. And now we're seeing the same thing happening in Virginia, 
where some neo-Nazis and white nationalists are going to try to co-opt the rally. And so NBC News supporters are willfully trying to call this a white nationalist rally. And willfully, I I mean, I played you the audio. You can clearly hear the people uh, saying the Pledge of Allegiance. And yet here's an NBC News reporter saying, oh, these are people chanting, we will not comply. We will not comply. Each side needs to do a good job of guarding its own side. The real difference is that on the left, they are willing to let the radicals be in charge and then pretend they're not radical. How many years was it that the the media, uh, that that they allowed uh, Louis Farrakhan to be mainstream with, with the with the Democrats. And frankly, had Louis Farrakhan not started comparing Jews to fleas and rats, they'd still be okay with it. But he had the audacity to go on video and actually say that uh, Jew, Jews were like like uh, lice and rats and, and, and flies and you name it, all sorts of awful comparisons. And uh, suddenly, oh, well, he, he, he said on camera what he said in private. Now we, now we can't be his friend. But on the right, they seek to define us by, by the worst possible people. I mean, first of all, what is wrong? Let's say the crowd was chanting, we will not comply. When the left does it, the media is okay with it. When, when the left says they're not going to comply with the law, the, the media is totally okay with it. Why are they not okay with conservatives saying they're not going to comply with the law? Never mind that it was the Pledge of Allegiance. But they're also they're, they're totally going to find uh, the right by the worst elements. That is why we on the right have to police ourselves. It's one reason, quite frankly, why I, I do feel an obligation, and it drives some of you crazy. I realize, oh, there he goes again. But I feel like I've got an obligation to point out when our side is willfully lying about something. It's okay to, to say something and to disagree. It's okay to have a difference of opinions. But when, when we look at something and we know something to be true to then to lie about it, including the president when he lies about it, I, I feel like we've got an obligation to tell the truth even if the other side doesn't because we're not like them and I don't want to be like them. And I, y'all, I just, we're, the media is going to define us by the worst elements. And so we on the right, I think we do have an obligation when we have protests, when we have rallies, when we have petition drives that we got to clean up our own side as best we can. And there are always going to be a few people who come in. The white nationalists right now are, are intent on sabotaging everything you and I have worked for. The white nationalists, they come in, they pretend to be, I mean, look at the rally we had here. Where where was it? In Dahlonega, up in North Georgia. There was a rally, and it was advertised as a Trump 2020 rally. And it turns out it wasn't actually a Trump 2020 rally. It was a white nationalist rally organized by a bunch of white nationalists, but they were trying to co-op the Trump supporters and get Trump supporters there to say, see, see, look, everybody agrees with us. And God bless him, Doug Collins, who was going to speak, and he when he found out, he walked away, and a bunch of other politicians walked away. A lot of the people who were going to show up, that they all walked away, and, and good, they needed to walk away. They needed to. It needed to happen because it was a bad group of people, a bad group of malcontents. We've got to clean up our own side on this stuff because the media 
media, by God, they want to do everything possible to define us. Like, for example, uh, remember when, when um, Gabrielle Giffords, the congresswoman in 2010, was shot. I was actually at an event. I was in um, I was at an Awakenings event, which was an evangelical conservative gathering. And uh, it was at Kiowa Island. And uh, she had been shot. And the media made it all out to be that it was um, right-wingers who had done it. It turns out that Jared Lochner, the the guy who shot her, killed a federal judge, he was completely not political of anything he had sown shown socialist tendencies in the past, but he was a schizophrenic, had mental health problems, uh, had had absolutely no political agenda at all. But for weeks, it was all about the politics of it. I was on CNN, and they're like, oh, we, the political rhetoric in this country has gotten out of control. It, 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 it must have driven him to do it. And it turns out it had absolutely nothing to do with it. The media, I mean, the New York Times, for example, was blaming Sarah Palin for it and actually had to run a story saying that she had nothing to do with it and then wound up having an editorial saying she was to blame for it, and they got sued by her. And as she deserved to do, and and I think they wound up settling the case. I think I read. I don't think it got thrown out. Maybe it did, but I I think they wound up coming to to a settlement. They should. She deserved it. They slandered her. The media loves to blame everything on conservatives. The media loves to blame everything on uh, the right. The media loves to find the one person holding the Confederate battle flag at a rally for the Second Amendment. And say, look, look, it's the Klan. It's the Klan. And what you and I have to do is we got to stand for truth and we got to hold our side accountable and we got to show that we are cleaning it up. And you say, well, it doesn't matter because the media is not going to cover that. But people find out and people know uh, we live in an age of social media where we can get past the media on all these stories. But we got to make it happen. We can't allow the one bad seed to define us. And uh, God bless the people in Virginia rallying today. I have urged caution on the program saying that the governor has stated what he wants to do and he, uh, the radical uh, agenda is not what he wants and they're deeply afraid of lawsuits and several friends of mine tell me I'm right on this but now some friends of mine have gone up there and they said you know at this point the governor's willing to let him do it all and lose in court uh, because the governor just wants to stay in the good graces of the left. Maybe that's the case. I don't know. Um, but we got to tread cautiously there on this issue. And uh, we, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to keep paying attention to it, and I will keep you advised of what's going on in Virginia. Stephen Gatowski is the only person in the media I trust to accurately cover what's happening. He is there on the ground, and he's going to be joining me on Wednesday from Shot Show. He's going to cover the rally today, and then he's going to fly out to Las Vegas for Shot Show, and he's going to join me from Shot Show on Wednesday. I wanted to go to Shot Show. Uh, one day I'm actually going to go to Shot Show, but nonetheless, I'm going to try to do as deep a take on the Virginia stuff as I can for you guys because I know it's something you're interested in and uh, I refuse to allow the media to define it as a white supremacist rally when the fact it is a law-abiding citizen standing up for their constitutional rights. It's just they're happening to standing up for the constitutional right the media hates. Uh, They will get not nearly as much attention as the the crowd of women protesters in D.C. yesterday. Only five to 10,000 showed up and yet the media thinks it's some sort of landmark event that any of them showed up at all again to cuss out the president while marching down the street. Buddy of mine, 
sent me a, a video clip said you got to play this you got to play this as soon as you come back you got to play this and and it is my buddy Stephen Gatowski who's going to be on the show on Wednesday interviewing somebody I'm going to have to listen to this at the bottom of the hour because you know I don't want to play something I haven't listened to this and and I don't want to play something that isn't appropriately bleeped as as necessary so I will take a look at it when we come back in the meantime we got other stuff uh, shaping up as well including the president who was at the Farm Bureau meeting and talking to the crowd and uh, trying to make his pitch to farmers. There have been a host of media stories out there that the president has a bunch of farmers who are mad at him. And the actual data doesn't bear that out, just so you understand. Uh, the, the data actually shows that farmers have an overwhelming propensity to support support the president even with the trade war situation uh and yet they're convinced that uh the the media or is convinced that the president's going to lose farmers here he is talking to the farm bureau on behalf of every american worker and family thank you for standing strong for america thank you very much to the farmers and ranchers for standing with me for saying the president is right yes it's tough right now but the president is doing the right thing thank you More than anything else, it proved to me that farmers love America. And I just want to tell you that America loves our farmers. Little more on ethanol. And we are also proudly promoting American ethanol. Chuck Grassley calls me. Joni Ernst calls me. Deb Fisher calls me. They all call, everybody. Pat calls me. Ethanol. They love ethanol. And I recently approved E15 to be used all year round instead of eight months. And that's a big thing for the American farmer. We're providing unprecedented support to ethanol, support like they've never had before. Yet the radical left in Washington wants to demolish these gains, and they frankly want to destroy your way of life. They are not for the farmer. They are not for our military. They are not for secure borders. They want open borders. They want sanctuary cities. Essentially, what they're saying is, we want crime. And one last bit. The energy that you need to run your farms. We will never let it happen. There are no better stewards of our precious natural resources than the American farmers who depend on the land and the environment for their very livelihood. You love your land. You're going to take care of your land. You don't need some bureaucrat in Washington telling everybody what the hell to do with your land. You love your land. When it comes to the environment, I will always trust a farmer over a Washington bureaucrat or a left-wing extremist. To help producers expand, I signed a farm bill that doubles the amount you can borrow to improve your farm. You like that, that farm bill. And Pat, Stand up again, Pat. You, boy, he was brutal in that farm bill. I get a call every two minutes from Pat. I say, tell him I'll call him back next week. <laughs> Look, he, he knows he's got a rally for farmers, but the data out there, despite all the media hype, I can't tell you the number of stories I've heard that, oh, farmers are going to reject the president because of the trade war. And it makes sense, given they're having to dump crops in some cases, but actually the president's given them so much 
federal money, which is a terrible idea, by the way. But they love him at this point. They absolutely love him. Uh, and you're going to have farmers for Trump yet again. When we come back, let's shift gears a little bit. I'll keep an eye on what's happening on the ground in Virginia right now. But we got the New York Times endorsement we need to ridicule. And we got way more to talk about when it comes to impeachment as well. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC. That's 877-973-7425. If you would like to be on the program, the, the New York Times, let me read you the endorsements of the New York Times editorial page. Going all the way back to 1960, John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, Hubert Humphrey, George McGovern, Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter, you know, let me put this in perspective. John Kennedy won, Lyndon Johnson won, Hubert Humphrey lost, George McGovern lost, Jimmy Carter won, Jimmy Carter lost, Walter Mondale lost, Michael Dukakis lost, Bill Clinton won, Bill Clinton won, Al Gore lost, John Kerry lost, Barack Obama won, Barack Obama won, Hillary Clinton lost. Well, now they're going with two. They're going with two endorsements. They're going for Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar. The one they want is Klobuchar, but they don't think she has what it takes, so they're going with Elizabeth Warren because that's the year of the woman, you know. In fact, they they, they dared to say, wait, i got to read it to you. Um, I, I want their exact words, just so you know. Elizabeth Warren is a gifted storyteller. In the words of Elizabeth Warren, how? woman lies about everything, and, and they're so upset about the president's lack of honesty, and they're willing to turn a blind eye towards Elizabeth Warren continually doing this. Uh, but what, what they're, they're making a really big deal of the fact that they're choosing two, but they're not really choosing two. They're just choosing another Democrat. I mean, it's completely unsurprising, and yet they want to make it a big deal. They want people to buzz about it, and why? Why should anyone buzz about uh, the New York Times predictable opinion page? And that's the problem. Is that the hush up, Siri? The New York Times is entirely predictable in this stuff, entirely predictable, and and most of the media these days is entirely predictable. You don't learn a lot from the media anymore because uh, they're not really committed to the truth. They're committed to advancing Democratic talking points, uh, whether it's impeachment or whatnot, and and the the failure to call witnesses and things like that. Um, in fact, speaking of, of impeachment and witnesses, let's go to the phone. Seth is calling from Sandy Springs. Seth, welcome to the program. Hi, Eric. How are you doing? Good. I just had a thought about the impeachment. Um, since the goal of the impeachment is not to remove Trump, per se, but actually to make people sick of him and all the scandals and stuff, wouldn't it be smarter for the Republicans to extend the trial for several months and get the Bidens and muddy them up a bit? And so that way it's not like, you know, oh, Biden's a clean slate. We'll automatically uh, just go ahead and elect him because I'm just so tired of the scandal every day with Trump. So well, I'm just thinking, like, you know, as a matter of fact, Seth, they they're thinking of that. I mean, if you listen to Ted Cruz and now Rand Paul and several others, they're, they've actually come out now and said, uh, you know, we should drag this out for four to six weeks and should thoroughly investigate the Bidens. In fact, ABC News had a big story on Friday about Frank Biden, Joe Biden's brother, and how Frank Biden became a millionaire by trading on his brother's name. And Rand Paul has come out and said, I think we need to hear from Frank Biden, too, and bring the whole Biden family in and see how they got enriched all off this. Listen, uh, the fact of the matter is uh, the Republicans have a majority of the votes in the Senate. If the Republicans decide they want to call a witness, they get to call a witness. That's just the reality. And the Democrats can't do anything about it. They cannot stop 
the president of the United States from advancing his cause. They cannot stop the president of the United States from calling witnesses who the Democrats refuse to hear from and don't want to hear from. Uh, and, and the Democrats are having trouble in that they could have called for people like Mulvaney and Bolton to testify, and they chose not to. And the Republicans are pointing that out. Here's Brianna Killer on CNN over the weekend. The president did a lot of things that abused his power. But bribery, you know, specifically. He, yeah, specifically, you know, he did attempt to bribe and uh, coerce a foreign government official. And in this why, case, why isn't that an article? You know, we have to look, look at the entire context of what happened here. Yeah, that's what this is about. This is about the abuse of power. It's about jeopardizing our national security, our troops. It's about undermining our free and fair elections. You know, the broad context of the pattern of this president is what's really important, and that's why we proceeded with impeachment. You could have had bribery as an article and then abuse of power as an article. For instance, Alan Dershowitz is going to argue on the Senate floor, as he basically just stated, that, I mean, bribery is in the constitution when it comes to impeachment he will argue or will certainly feel that you democrats would have had a much better case to actually say bribery if you thought it was bribery you all said bribery there's have been talking points where democrats are saying this is bribery and yet it wasn't an article of impeachment was that a mistake considering what alan dershowitz is going to argue no absolutely not you know let's broaden back out here and talk about what's really going on here yeah actually it was a mistake because remember, even Nancy Pelosi said it was it was a bribery issue, and they, they're not even they're not just doing that. They're not calling witnesses related to that. Here's Chris Wallace with Representative Jeffries. What about the argument that we heard from uh, Senator Graham in the previous segment? Why should the Senate take the time and go to the trouble to litigate whether or not they can hear from witnesses like former National Security Advisor John Bolton? when the House could have done it, and you decided that you were in too much of a rush to do that? Well, we proceeded expeditiously because, you know, Trump's abuse of power, his pressuring of a foreign government in this instance for his own personal political gain related to an urgent matter of national security. You know, the notion of withholding $391 million that was allocated in well, a well, bipartisan wait, wait. You can't basis. Have it, but again, you can't have it two, both ways, Congress. When you say it was an urgent matter, it was a threat, and then Nancy Pelosi waited a month to even hand over the articles of impeachment. Yeah, I'm glad you raised that because there's two parts to this process. There is the impeachment process, and then, of course, there's the removal trial that takes place in the Senate. Notice how the Democrats suddenly don't have good answers for this stuff. I mean, I, I played early in the show that Maxine Waters saying, oh, well, we couldn't because it would take too long to go to court and have these witnesses, but that's not actually true. Courts would have expedited the process. We know they would have expedited the process because they expedited it for Don McGahn. Really telling to me that they, they have not carried on these conversations. Really telling to me that the Democrats refuse to have these witnesses show up. Really telling to me that they decided to make the Senate the bad guy here. So, oh, well, the Senate's not calling the witnesses. No, you didn't call the witnesses. Do you know? I've done the research. I have done the research. There have been 68 impeachments in American history. Only one time in those 68 impeachments. Have this has the Senate ever called witnesses not previously heard by the House representatives? That was, and you know what that one time was? That was Alcee Hastings. And why did they call a witness not heard by the House? Because the House had called the witness, and the witness evaded the House of Representatives, so he didn't have to show up. That's it. That's the only time the Senate wanted to have a witness not heard by the House. Is because the guy evaded ever going to the House, tried to get him, and couldn't find him. 
The House didn't even try to get Mulvaney and Bolton. They knew exactly where they were, and they didn't try to get them. And now they want the Senate to be the bad guy here. It's not going to work. But, of course, the media will take the Democrats' side. Listen to this is a conversation between Margaret Sullivan of the Washington Post. She used to be the um, the ombudsman for the New York Times. And Brian Stetler, uh, CNN's media guy, uh, who really serves really as, a, as chief apologist for the American media outside of Fox, uh, complaining about the media coverage. Uh, Margaret, you wrote a column uh, this weekend for WashingtonPost.com about uh, proportionality and about how there's so much going on, there is so much chaos going on. We all need a sense of proportion. Uh, you wrote here, a sense of proportion, what is significant and what is trivial seems strangely missing right now. What truly deserves our all-out attention and outrage? What's the small stuff? You think newsrooms aren't getting this right? Well, some, some of them are getting it somewhat right, and I think the Washington Post is doing a pretty good job with it, but I do think that we, you know, the obsession this past uh, week with the, you know, supposed feud between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, I think is is the small stuff. And I think the Lev Parnas uh, interview and as we head into uh, impeachment trial week, that's the big stuff. And um, to, to kind of present them as roughly equal, like here's a couple stories coming out of Washington and they're kind of about politicians fighting with each other. I think that misses the point. Well, it, it depends on the medium, right, and where, where this is happening. Because if you're listening to a radio broadcast and they only have two minutes, that's true. everything does start to sound equal exactly. when it's not. Right. And you do want to, you know, I think there's you want to hit a number of different stories, but you have to be able to say, you know, this one matters more. And we flag that in different ways. Where is it in the broadcast? Uh, how much time does it get? How is it framed? Yeah. All those decisions that that editors and producers make. All the eagle. Notice how she's she's trying to say that there really wasn't a controversy between Sanders and and. Warren, that the media really needs to spend more time focusing on the president and impeachment and all the bad stuff that the president did. Leave the Democrats alone. Leave Britney alone. <laughs> For those of you who know, you know. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. The <laughs> just. The, the 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 media meltdown on this stuff has become I, I really could change this entire show and just do three hours on how much the media screws this stuff up uh, and and their obsession with trying to be fair where fairness is focused always on the Republicans and not on the Democrats you know here's the thing um, a lot of Democrats behind the scenes are beginning to complain that Nancy Pelosi stacked the deck for Joe Biden. Now, she didn't really. That's just the truth. She didn't really stack the deck for Joe Biden. But that is the outcome of the way she handled this impeachment situation. By dragging it out for a month, she has ensured that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are going to miss the Iowa caucus. And they're livid behind the scenes. And the Bernie bros are blaming Nancy Pelosi. Here's the problem. There, there is increasing data to show that while black voters support Joe Biden, the, the white base of the Democratic Party that gives the most money does not like Joe Biden. They've decided that he's too moderate, too mainstream, not progressive enough, and Nancy Pelosi has just propped him up. That is going to come back and cause the Democrats problems, uh, and they're going to fight with themselves. And you and I both know what's going to happen. The media is never going to cover the fighting on the Democratic side in the way they would ever cover the fighting on the Republican side. It's always a civil war on the Republican side, and on the Democratic side, it's a supposed fight. And yet, it's actually a real fight brewing on their side. I, I, and I gotta, I gotta 
point out the 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 meet the press stuff on this Bernie uh, Elizabeth Warren. So li- listen to this conversation on meet the press. I think there's a lot of sexism in the way they went after Hillary. I think it was unfair, an awful lot of it. Well, that's not going to happen with me. Well, you know, I mean, I think that um, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, they've actually given voice to what at least Democratic women feel happened to Hillary. And some of that has been in hindsight, you know, looking at the overall scope of the uh, the coverage and the attacks. And I see it on social media. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, it was a voicing of an, you know, acknowledging up front that sexism and even within our party and certainly in the electorate is there and i think elizabeth warren actually did a good job of saying you know what here's how you prove electability and then she made her argument carol you know, I think the sexism element is something that it's good for us to all discuss, whether it's in the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, or journalists. But Hillary Clinton had other problems, too, with the electorate. I mean, she had a toxicity that came with her that had nothing to do with her gender and had everything to do with the baggage people associated with her husband and her time in the White House. So it's, we need to be careful about just saying it's about sexism. It, that may have been a big part of it. <laughs> the sexism. The sexism within the it's it's time to it, it is funny to watch all of these people rally to uh to Elizabeth Warren's side on this and you know there are still people livid livid with CNN last week for for accepting Elizabeth Warren's version of the story that Bernie Sanders actually told her a woman couldn't get elected in 2020 now now just so we're clear here uh, I actually don't believe Elizabeth Warren. Why don't I believe Elizabeth Warren? Because as Bernie Sanders rightly pointed out last week, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote in 2016. So please don't say a woman couldn't get elected in 2020. And yet everybody on the Democratic side is rushing to support uh, Elizabeth Warren. And they're doing so in large part because they see her as less electable than Bernie Sanders. Because she's actually, she doesn't come across well. She's got a history of lying. You got the Pocahontas matter, all of that. And yet uh, the wagons are being circled on all of the, all of the stuff for Elizabeth with Warren against Bernie Sanders that they're willing to explore sexism in the Democratic Party. Meanwhile, you know who wants to support Bernie Sanders? Conservative talk show host Hugh Hewitt. This split here, because this split might actually help Biden, who might be the tougher foe. I thought the winner of the split was Pete Buttigieg, because either the Warren voter or the Sanders voter who was turned off, they're not going to go to Joe Biden. They've already committed to a progressive. I can tell you one thing. Uh, because Virginia allows early voting, and because I don't know where NBC or Salem will have me on March 3rd, I'm voting this week. Oh. Vo- and because it's Virginia, <laughs> I get to vote in the Democratic primary. I'm voting for Bernie Sanders. And I think a lot of people will, because he's authentic. You're going to do calculated voting? Uh, no, it's not. It's not it's because I think he's authentic. Yeah, you're going to vote for Bernie Sanders against Donald Trump? No, okay. I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. But I want a clear choice between the authentic, <laughs> traditional socialist and all the people who just pretend to be. Oh, wow. <sighs> hey, have you ever met people who really think they're clever? Hugh occasionally strikes me as that sort of guy. He's going to go vote for Bernie Sanders as the authentic socialist. You know, I mean, the the calculation here flat out is that Bernie Sanders has a Jeremy Corbyn problem, and the Democrats know it, and Hugh Hewitt saying he's going to go vote for Bernie Sanders in Virginia is an admission that Hugh Hewitt also knows that Bernie Sanders has a Jeremy Corbyn problem. He is too far left for everybody. Uh, and the only people who don't realize it are the Bernie bros who want to start a revolution and burn the place down, and everybody else is scared to death of having Bernie. 
And so they're circling the wagons and they're willing to defend Elizabeth Warren's lie to sabotage Bernie Sanders. And if you don't think that's going to start a fight within the Democratic Party, you just don't understand the way this stuff works. It's going to be a huge fight within the Democratic Party. It's going to be a huge fight with the Bernie bros. Remember, enough of them sat home in 2016 to hand the election to Donald Trump, and there's a real fear they'll do it again. And they will as the media decides that Bernie's the liar, even though he's not. My buddy Stephen Gutowski, who is going to call in on Wednesday, he's the only gun rights reporter I actually trust in the country. He does such good reporting. Uh, He's an NRA firearms instructor, a big advocate of the Second Amendment, but he's also very honest when it comes to this issue, tries to be very fair with both sides. He's in Virginia. I want to play this conversation. This is with the black man at the rally. You know, the rally is supposed to be, it's it's white nationalists. Here's Stephen Gutowski interviewing a black man at the rally. So what's your name? My name is Mark. Northern Virginia. Okay, where, where in Northern Virginia? Northern Virginia. Okay. Right. All right. Uh, how far did you have to travel today? Um, what, two and a half, two hours. And so, why did you think it was important to drive those two and a half hours? Uh, one, I, I love this country. It's about the Second Amendment. It's about our ability to defend ourselves and our loved ones. It's not only a uh, constitutional constitutional right issue, but it's also a civil right issue. Um, the governor, who's known for blackface and or possibly having a Klan uh, hood on. Uh, has the audacity on MLK Day to declare uh, executive order that would prevent people from lawfully protesting. This has been a long-standing rally where people have come and they have protested. And then, on top of that, to add insult to injury, um, uh, he wanted to uh, push forth the narrative that uh, white supremacists are stirring up issues. I feel comfortable here, haven't had any issues here. I don't know what the problem is. So it, 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 for me, as an African-American on MLK Day, it's critically important that we preserve the ability to, to defend ourselves and our loved ones. And I will not allow anybody to push a narrative saying that there are racist people at this, these rallies. It's not true. Stephen Gutowski uh, doing great work interviewing people on the ground there in Virginia, showing that uh, things are, are definitely not what the media would have you believe. You actually do have NBC News reporters trying to make this out to be a a white supremacist rally in Richmond. And it is a very diverse crowd. It is black. It is white. It is male. It is female. Uh, It it is a group of law-abiding citizens who are very angry with the governor of Virginia deciding that uh, he's going to issue uh, an executive order banning protests. This is... Ah, boy. Um, The media in this country refuses to engage honestly with the second. You know, so I was having this conversation on Sunday evenings. A friend of mine comes over on Sunday evenings, and we sit on the front porch. We have a cigar. We have a glass of bourbon. Um, He has the cigar. I I occasionally do. Uh, And another friend of ours came down last night from Atlanta to hang out with us, who's been in California. He was talking about the, the just absurd gun restrictions in California and the um, some of the things in California, for example, in California, you can't rapidly fire your handgun at a gun range. Uh, you can discharge a bullet no more than one per second. And if you if you rapidly discharge your gun, uh, you get yelled at and thrown off the gun range ultimately. And, and if you go to a gun range with an AR, you've got to put a device uh, behind the trigger that slows down your rate of pull. 
Uh, he said it's just it, it's very bizarre. They try to make it Im- impossible, and yet people can still go to gun ranges. They can still shoot guns, and you realize uh, very quickly that the people who are writing the gun laws are people who have never held a gun in their life and don't know how to use them. And this is the same thing with the coverage of the media. For all of the, how many members of the media do you hear use the word clips? Oh, they, they've got a they've got a a a twenty five round clip in the gun, as opposed to a magazine. The they can't get the lingo right. They don't understand it. It reminds me of the uh, assault weapons ban in the nineteen nineties. It was um, what was it? Was it Field and Stream, Soldier Fortune? One of the magazines put out a guide showing how to get around the ban. Essentially, uh, you could have a you could have a, a banned AR as long as it was pink. If you had a pink one. Uh, then that wasn't considered a a military-style rifle. And so you could get every single option that you wanted just by buying a pink gun because it was a bunch of people who didn't really understand guns. I just... The media is never going to play straight on this issue. But, you know, you've got talk radio now. You've got the Internet. You've got Fox News. You've got all sorts of media outlets that can get around the prevailing voices of the mainstream media and give you the truth. And that's what we're committed to do here with this gun rights fraud. We're going to keep our eye on this through the day. We'll bring you the latest tomorrow. Stephen Gutowski joining me on Wednesday to talk about all this. See you guys tomorrow.